Music, news, entertainment. It's all right here. This is The Kelly Alexander Show. Hi, it's Kelly, and this week we chat with Mark LaBelle, lead singer of Los Angeles-based rock band Dirty Honey, who have caught the attention of Guns N' Roses, The Who, and Slash. We also speak with renowned trumpeter Paul Merkello, who's been a principal trumpet with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra since 1995. We've got new music on the way for you, too, from Lady Gaga, Jessie Ware, SZA, and Justin Timberlake. Dirty Honey is exploding on the rock scene right now with their amazing brand of sexy, rhythmic rock and roll, and we're excited to chat with lead singer Mark LaBelle on the roller coaster ride that they've been on and what we can expect next. Mark, welcome to The Kelly Alexander Show. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, I've read that you have college degrees in broadcasting, corporate communications, and marketing, so you know you could be sitting in a fancy office with a white-collar job right now, but you put everything like that on hold and then you know lived out of your car for a year in Los Angeles to pursue music. Why did you put yourself through that? Like, what was calling you to sort of give it this huge, massive push? I mean, it's just, it, it all stems from, from passion and what you want to do with your life, and ultimately, I, I didn't want to do any of the other stuff um, that, that I, you know, went to school for. Um, I mean, those are pretty vague degrees anyway. It's not like I went to school to be a doctor. Um, you know, corporate communications, I think a lot of people get a degree in that they don't really know what they want to do with their life. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of keeps it vague to go out and do a, a myriad of things. But, um, yeah, I sort of discovered, rediscovered music, um, you know, fortunately at that time. And I... Uh, moved out to LA with, with a dollar in my pocket and a dream and it's sort of starting to work out thankfully. That's awesome. Now being from Montreal, uh, we're a big hockey town of course and I know that you grew up around hockey and were considering that at one point. Uh, are, is, is hockey still an important part of your of your existence and who's your favorite professional team? Yeah, uh, it's still a huge part of my life. I mean I still play like several times a week when we're home um, and you know, come to think of it, we just went, John and I, when we were in Detroit, we went to the the Bruins uh, Wings game. We've seen Nashville play on the road. Justin and I went to Amelie Arena to see the Penguins play in Tampa. But, yeah, the Penguins are my team and uh, always have been since I was a little kid. I was a big fan of uh, Ken Reagan and Tom Barrasso in goal there. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still an avid fan of the league. I'll, I'll go see a game in whatever city we're in, obviously. Um, we're actually on our way to Seattle, and I'm excited uh, next year for that team to start popping up all over the country. That's awesome. Now, you and your fellow bandmates and Dirty Honey definitely have had uh, you know, something magical going on with your music and playing together. Do you think that the four of you coming together was like destiny, kismet, whatever you want to call it? Because you guys really have such a such a vibe going on. Um... I don't know. You know, it took, we, we kind of, it was more a surgical approach to, the, the struggle was really to find people that wanted to be in a band in LA. There's so many like distractions and like, there's so many artists that, um, you know, need musicians. So people that move to LA tend to become sidemen rather than band members, you know, with sidemen have like a, a weekly paycheck, you know, playing for whoever, Christina Aguilera and, uh, Ariana Grande, whoever, um, you know, and, and really the, the challenge was just finding people that wanted to be in a band and play original music and get in a van and go touring and take a risk, you know, with their life. So, um, I'm glad we found the guys. Certainly. I don't, I don't know if it was destiny. I think it was more just finding, uh, people that were also passionate about rock and roll. 
Can you explain the importance to us of bands like Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses with regards to you and your band? Because I'm assuming that they are a huge influence. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this if they, you know, never happened. Um, obviously, like Aerosmith, Guns, ACDC, Zeppelin, they're all huge influences on my musical taste and my life. Um, you know, but for sure, I, I would not be doing any of this had they not uh, led the way. Can you talk to us about what it's like to be the front man of a band uh, that's exploding? Like, do you feel the pressure or are you just fully sort of enjoying the ride? I mean, yeah, certainly there's, there's, there's pressure to continue, you know, writing good music and, you know, to go out and do live shows and, um, you know, that those sort of, certainly the music is in our hands, but, you know, the, the shows thing, booking shows and all that stuff, that's sort of, uh, in the hands of our agent and our manager. But, um, you know, I think really it's just go out there and kill it every night and, you know, introduce people to your music and hopefully they, they walk away a new fan. And that certainly seems to be happening. Obviously, you're, you know, it's been going extremely well, but, um, I think we're all sort of in, in the same position where we're just enjoying ourselves and, you know, having fun. And I think ultimately, you know, I, I sort of live my life that way, right? If, if I'm not having fun, why would I be doing something? Um, it might be hard work. It might be challenging at times. Uh, you might not want to do it, but ultimately when you step out on a stage, if, if you're not having a good time with your friends playing music that you, you wrote and love, you know, you, you probably shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So, Has it been a calculated decision on behalf of the band to not sign with a major label? Because I'm sure there's been tons of offers. Now at this point, we're, we're pretty insulated from the label sort of conversations. I think our manager sort of takes care of, you know, those offers and those inquiries. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, we certainly don't have any interest now in, in signing with somebody. I think all the, the really hard work in, in terms of that initial push to cut through, you know, all the noise out there um, has already been done. So when we look at, like, what a label could really do for us, it's, kind of you know we don't really know what the answer is at this point but in terms of international stuff i think that's where they could have some value but um certainly here in north america i don't really see us doing anything in the short term so what's your stance on social media for you guys as a band like do you each sort of handle one of the social platforms like is it important for you to be in touch with your audience that way because i know you know it wasn't that long ago where um people couldn't reach out directly to their favorite artists but now people can and can respond back yeah i think um you know obviously it's super important um you know the people we want to appeal to and are, are you know 18 to 30 years old or whatever and even younger like you know, we have little kids every day sending us guitar videos um, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and everything. And, you know, we're all sort of linked in to all those accounts, and everybody sort of checks messages and, you know, stays active. Um, and certainly when you have six-hour drives and stuff in a van, it's a, a, an easy time killer to just go on there and see what's happening. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously immensely important. There's a lot of, like, connections that have happened along the way some, some gigs have even happened like through social media so it's it's interesting that it never you know back bands that we used to love and, and still love didn't have it you know and now it's like this super important thing that just sort of came out of nowhere so it's it's kind of diluted the the entertainment market a little bit because there's so many ways to you know showcase your stuff there's not only is there instagram and youtube and spotify and apple music and 
Amazon, there's there's still all the late night TV shows and everything. So, you know, how you figure out which ones are important, you know, that's beyond my pay grade, but, you know, certainly, you know, the importance of social media is a huge, huge element of our, our success. Hanging out with us on the show is Mark LaBelle, lead singer of rock band Dirty Honey. Learn more about them on their website. Grab all their social media handles, dirtyhoney.com. Mark, talk to us about, I guess, the fact that, you know, you have some pretty cool guys in your corner that are digging what you guys are doing, like including Slash. So what does that mean to you to have someone who's had such success with many different bands uh, realizing that you guys are onto something? Yeah, he's uh, obviously, like, he's a huge influence for all of us and the project he's been in pretty much all awesome like he, he and sort of Chris Cornell are the two people I look to that sort of did a lot of things with a lot of different other artists and none of them like fell flat really you know it's, it's pretty remarkable um, and you know he he said nothing but nice things you know to, to me personally and the guys in the band and you know to have his support I mean he's literally one of the biggest rock stars on the planet means you know the world to me and, and to everybody um, but you know, there's other people like Miles Kennedy who's been very vocal about the band being, you know, a savior of rock and roll, and we're very grateful to him about that. And um, you know, just the other day, like Tom Hamilton tweeted out about us from from Aerosmith, and it's, it's pretty crazy to to see your heroes even knowing who you are, let alone saying nice things about you. Have you guys been able to take in some of this stuff? Like, because I, I'm sure you guys are, you know, like things like we talked about are, are just exploding and I'm sure your schedule's swamped and packed and you've got a lot going on, but have you been able to kind of take moments and, and realize this is happening? <clears throat> yeah, it happens to me more like after shows, you know, sometimes we'll drive like two or three hours to the next city, you know, wherever you're going to sleep at night. And, you know, there's a lot of late nights just like looking out the window, reflecting on, you know, what we've accomplished in our relatively young career and it's like we're super grateful that people even care about what we're doing you know let alone the people that we admire um it's it's pretty remarkable so far so we're just trying to continue to enjoy it and, and i'm sure we're, we're gonna have a month off uh at some point i think in the summertime and be able to look back on some pictures and some videos and get a chance to really reflect on it I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, being on the road because I know, you know, back in the day, there was uh, lots of talk of like how bands got up to no good uh, after shows and all that kind of stuff. And I think now as we've progressed further in in the planet's life, we kind of know that it's important for musicians to sleep and to take care of themselves, to work out, all that kind of stuff. Being in a rock Mm -hmm. band, is that something that you care about? Because I know you have to take care of your voice. Our first tour was with Red Sun Rising and Goodbye June, and we, we had some, like, five in a row on that tour with grueling drives in between, and, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be any good, and, you know, to your point again about social media, like, if I'm up there singing awful, uh, you know, that's certainly not something I want to live on the internet uh, for the rest of my life. So, you know, yeah, I, I try to take pretty good care of myself, but that's not to say... Uh, we don't have a good time. We certainly like to drink and, and party. And, you know, I, I tell the story all the time. Like John is out in Dallas partying you know, in, in the midst of, you know, dozens of tornadoes touching down all around us in, uh, in Texas uh, one night when we had a 5 a.m. flight. So we definitely find time to party. And I think it's more surgical about picking your spots, knowing you have a day off, um, you know, the night you want to go out. And, uh, 
you know, you can, you can pick your spots and, and be pretty good. It's a, I mean, you want to have a good time. That's why you got into rock and roll. So uh, if, if you're not doing that, then you're doing something wrong. What's your thoughts on people sort of saying over the last couple of years that rock has been in a bit of a slump? Obviously, I know there's been a lot of, uh, I think everything's cyclical. So I think, you know, people sort of jump on that bandwagon. But yeah, do you agree. think there's a bit of like an edge that's been lost and that's coming back now? Like, what's your take on the genre that you guys are in? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know how you feel about the music that's sort of been being made the last 20 years or so, but I, I haven't really thought it's been all that interesting, specifically in the rock genre. I mean, there's been a ton of good stuff that, you know, even pop and country, like I love artists like Chris Stapleton and Sturgill Simpson um, as well. And like, I think what, what Billie Eilish is doing is pretty cool and uh, kind of cutting edge, but, and, and her brother is a genius actually, um, producer, but, uh, you know, and when it comes to rock and roll, it's like not been that interesting. I think the most interesting thing that I can remember is maybe like the Black Keys or Gary Clark Jr.'s first album, and then going back even further, like American Indian by Green Day was like totally mind blowing to me um, when I was like a really little kid. But uh, you know, other than that, there hasn't been all that much that I really gravitated to. I kind of stuck to the Guns N' Roses, the Black Crows, Aerosmith, and Zeppelin. Um, they, they filled most of my playlists uh, growing up. So, but yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's some other bands out there doing some sort of blues space rock and roll that, that is bringing back the performance element of rock and roll that's been lost. It, I think Pro Tools made it a little too easy for artists to perfect themselves. And that's not good for rock and roll. You know, that's cool for pop and stuff. But um, certainly the artists that, that I grew up loving weren't perfect. And, you know, had they had Pro Tools, they might not have had the same career. That, that they did because, you know, the albums I grew up loving were, were flawed. So, um, yeah, I'm, ho I'm hoping that that trend is changing. So, Talk to us about fashion because I've seen a lot of your press photos and you have a really, like a really great sense of fashion, which I think actually helps like probably in Do your I? lead singer role. So uh, how important is my it for you? To... Might disagree with oh, you. really? <laughs> I think your, your, your stuff is cool. I love it, especially the hats. So, so uh, yeah, how is that important to you? Like, how do you make decisions about what you're going to wear on stage? You know what? It's, it's pretty funny. Like the, the hat place that I go to is right down the road from my apartment in LA. And uh, it's so I, I like, go buy it all the time I'm like god I need to get that or that and there's always like a dozen things in the store that I can wear at any moment but uh yeah I mean I just I just fell in love with um certain designers and and really artists you know I, I see them as um in the fashion world and I just sort of gravitated to, to people like John Romanos and K and the Wise Hatters also in LA and Gunnar Fox and um you know I just just grabbed things that I liked and I, I hope they sort of go together. I don't know if they do. There's there's a guy that makes great band t-shirts in LA um, called Maidborn that I really love. And, uh, you know, they, they pretty much, those three or four, you know, designers are pretty much all I ever wear. So um, it makes it easy it, so long as they keep making good stuff. That's cool. And I have to ask you about this because I got my motorcycle license last year and I love it. And so I hear oh, that nice. yeah, I hear that you're a big motorcycle guy. So I have to ask you, what's it like for you being out on the road and what's your dream bike? Uh, well, I own them both, honestly. Um, did you get a bike yet or no? Uh, yeah, I have a Yamaha V-Star 650. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny that you just uh, started riding. It's a little cold up there, though. Oh, yeah. Right now it's, it's in bed uh, for the winter. <laughs> 
Yeah, I um, you know, it's a huge part of my life, honestly. Like, I'll be honest, that and, and playing hockey are kind of two like mental um, sort of freedoms. They're, they're like the two activities I have that sort of free your mind um, in, in my off time, and it's nice to just shut your brain off and go for a ride or, or go play hockey for an hour and a half with the boys, and you know, try and try and score some goals. But um, yeah, anytime we have off time, I'm going off you know, on a moto trip. I'm going to do one uh, with my father. Actually, he's coming out to California when the uh, when the tour ends. We're going to go right up to the Redwoods, and I'll be on my dream bike, which is uh, the BMW 1200 uh, GS, and that's, that's sitting in the garage right now, and I'll be taking that up, you know, maybe like a 1,000 miles up north and turn around and come home with him, and, um, you know, it'll be good. We like to you like to go for a ride and see the world that way. And as you know, and, or, or you will soon know, it's the best way to travel. Um, I was a big, I'm actually reading Neil Peart's book right now um, about his motorcycle journeys with Rush. And um, I'm really enjoying it. And it's a good way to clear my mind when we're sitting in the back of the van to read that. a fellow musician and motorcyclist book. But um, yeah, it's like I, I've, been going to Switzerland and Italy and Croatia for a long time, like just going riding with buddies. It's a great way to release some stress and just see the world. I have to ask you, I've read that you guys did come to Montreal to play Heavy Montreal. I'm just wondering, did you have a chance to sort of explore Montreal at all? And and are you looking forward to coming back? Because I know you guys will be here in the spring. Yeah, we're coming back. Um, We didn't get much time that trip, but, you know, uh, I've been probably a dozen times. I grew up not too far from Montreal. So uh, that's, it's obviously a good little, my first actual, like my first experience ever going to an NHL game was uh, seeing a Habs, Habs game playing the uh, Sabres um, many years ago. So uh, yeah, my dad and I, we would, we would shoot up there for games and, you know, I would play hockey up there against a team called Dollard uh, growing up and I've, I've seen it quite a bit, um, but it's, it's probably uh, my favorite Canadian town so far just because it's so different than anywhere else in North America. Um, you know, it's got its own culture and obviously its own language, and I sort of like places that are a little different, you know. That's cool. But yeah, we'll be getting back up there and spending some more time, and we'll be, uh, what is it called, Schwartz's Deli? We'll be hitting Schwartz's Deli. Yeah. In, uh, that's good. And you have to go oh, to uh, La Banquise for some poutine. We absolutely will. Okay. And uh, you know what? Heavy Montreal is such a great festival. That, like, uh, yeah. that, that was definitely so far a shining light in the, uh, the festival circuit. Um, the food was great. The festival grounds were awesome. They got some great talent out at, at that show. And, you know, Quebec likes rock and roll, so... That's perfect. Uh, thank you so much for this, Mark. It's been so great to have you on the show, and I'm so excited for where your band is headed. Like, we wish you all the best of luck. Thank you, and yeah, we'll be seeing you soon. I think we're going to be there in April, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, April 27th, you'll be here, and I'm, I'm going to be there, so I can't wait to see it. Cool. Well, we look forward to it. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for this. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Kelly. That's Mark LaBelle, lead singer of rock band Dirty Honey. Learn more about them at DirtyHoney.com. Time now for some new music. I want just to be loved, loved. I want just to be loved, loved. 
Lady Gaga has dropped a new song, and all her little monsters are extremely happy. The song is called Stupid Love, and it is a return to dance pop for Gaga after going more country and ballady on her last project. A new album is on the way, too, from Lady Gaga. We don't have a release date yet, but the rumored title is Chromatica. Stupid Love already doing amazingly well. It could be the number one song this week on the UK charts. Jessie Ware is an English artist from London, and she's been on the scene for over 10 years now. She's just released a new song called Spotlight. It's getting a lot of buzz, and as you can tell, it has a great disco vibe to it with some awesome, whispery vocals. Now, Jessie has announced that a new album is on the way called What's Your Pleasure. It's going to be released on June 5th. Justin Timberlake and R&B singer SZA have released the first single and music video from the upcoming Trolls World Tour movie. The song has a great mid-tempo beat, as you can tell. It's also super groovy. JT in this new Trolls movie and has also curated the soundtrack. The movie stars Anna Kendrick, Ozzy Osbourne, Mary J. Blige, and Kelly Clarkson. Trolls World Tour hits theaters April 17th, and so does the soundtrack. The Kelly Alexander Show, bringing you fresh sounds like this. Joining us on the show is Paul Markello. He's been principal trumpet with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra since 1995 and has appeared as a soloist with prestigious orchestras right around the world. Paul has released an album called The Enlightened Trumpet, where he's been joined by the Oxford Philharmonic Orchestra, and we're so excited to learn more about the project. Paul, welcome back to The Kelly Alexander Show. My pleasure. How are you doing, Kelly? I am fantastic, and I wanted to start off by saying that when I first started my podcast about 10 years ago, you were one of my first interviews, so I'm very happy to have you back on the show a decade later and knowing that you're still doing what you're doing, which is awesome. Thank you very much, and I remember you played a little bit of trumpet on that show. I did. Not well, but I managed to get some <laughs> some sound out, so that's cool. Um, before we, we launch into your new album, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, your start as, as a, a kid playing the trumpet. When did you take it up? Well, I started actually on piano uh, around 10 years old, and that didn't go very well at all. I wasn't very coordinated with both hands. And um, but in the public school system, we had, you know, concert bands and wind ensemble orchestra. And I heard, you know, some trumpet players playing, actually cornet players at that time. And I picked it up one day and I just loved the sound of it. And um, I came across a great teacher who was highly inspiring and very motivating for me. And that kind of was the game changer. He was very uh, supportive of my pursuits, even though I probably didn't sound very good in the beginning. And I actually struggled with braces for two years, but he was very patient with me through that process. Now, once you started playing, did you have any idea that the trumpet would play such an important part of your life and that it would actually become a career path for you? In the, in the beginning, no. I think we all, you know, when we're kids, we, we do, we try different things that we're passionate about or that are fun to us. And usually we, we continue with stuff that we get better at, you know, and so... You know, I, I had an aspiring uh, a dream to be an NBA player. I grew up near Chicago watching Michael Jordan play, but, you know, uh, that didn't really work out. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the trumpet, the trumpet, I don't know, something about it, many things were difficult for me, but some things about producing sound came very easily for me. And I always found it to be a very expressive instrument, and I, I think that's been my 
uh, I guess my strength as a player is to always go toward that lyricism and that kind of more soulful playing. And that's really helped develop my technique in, in all areas, actually. As you were growing up, you know, sort of going through high school and all that sort of stuff, how did you then transition that once you got out of high school into the next step in your playing career? Yeah, well, I started to, you know, search out different conservatories um, around the United States uh, in, in uh, Boston and in, uh, in New York. And I wound up at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, with a great teacher, Charles Geyer, who was a former member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra trumpet section. And when I got in there, you know, it was pretty much a life-changing moment because the level of playing, you know, that I was hearing at 19 years old was just extraordinary. And, and, and Charles Geyer, my teacher, was, was really, really inspiring to me and really pushed me in the right way. He knew how to kind of push my buttons, you know, sensing my strengths and weaknesses and helping me build my technique to a level where I actually started to think, hmm, if this goes well, I can start taking professional auditions, which I, which I did start at age 21 and won my first job as principal trumpet in New Orleans Symphony. So that's kind of where it all started for me professionally. Can you talk a little bit about that experience being in New Orleans? Because obviously that's such an important musical city. Yeah. I mean, New Orleans was amazing. It was, it was interesting because, you know, I won a job as first trumpet in the New Orleans Symphony Orchestra. We didn't really play that, that much jazz. We probably did about... Uh, six to eight pop series per season. I'm talking about a full calendar year. So that's not that much if you consider the you know, history of jazz in New Orleans. However, being in New Orleans for those two years, surrounded by some of the world's leading jazz musicians on a regular basis, I would go to uh, Snug Harbor, uh, you know, House of Blues, uh, any the Preservation Hall, I mean, any number of places even the places that weren't so famous, the neighborhood bars had great jazz players. So that was a really big moment for me, even though I wasn't improvising as much as I do now, those sounds and those styles stick in, in my head very much and, and, and very much motivate me now to explore um, impro- improvisation and jazz more than, than I did when I was living there. What led you to leave New Orleans and where did you go next? Well, unfortunately, New Orleans struggled a bit financially, uh, the symphony. And um, so I had to keep taking auditions. And ironically, uh, I, I won a job with the Rochester Philharmonic. So that's where I went to school. But they had a principal trumpet opening, and it was a good salary. And so I auditioned there, and I won it. Um, and I actually um, also was playing at the same time in Miami with the New World Symphony Orchestra, which was kind of a training orchestra. Uh, for young uh, aspiring musicians. And I do a lot of work with them now. In fact, I'm going there in two weeks to to play their 30th gala concert. And, you know, that whole period for me was a period of searching out, you know, my level of playing. How high could I go? Uh, How much better could I get? I was still pretty young. And uh, when I was 25, I took an audition for solo trumpet in OSM, Montreal Symphony. Uh, Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal, and I won the job. And at twenty, you know, twenty-five, I was moving to Montreal, and and I've been here ever since. And it's just been a dream, a dream position, and a dream life for me uh, to play with this orchestra here. Can you explain to the audience why you've decided to stay with at Montreal so long? Because first of all, I'm a Montrealer. I've lived in Toronto, but there's definitely something special about being from the city and and, and being in the city. So uh, I'm sure you've had tons of opportunities to leave and go somewhere else. But why have you stayed so long? Yeah, that's a really good question. There have been some opportunities, but yet, the first of all, the orchestra is one of the greatest orchestras in the world. I think anybody who's gone to hear the orchestra knows that. 
Um, maybe we don't have the same reputation as a Berlin Philharmonic or Chicago Symphony. I, I'm not sure exactly uh, if that's the case, the worldwide perspective, but I can tell you that um, it is definitely uh, at the highest caliber worldwide. And so, you know, my colleagues, one thing I really admire about my colleagues for the last 25 years, there isn't one concert that we don't go in trying to play our absolute best. And regardless of the repertoire, regardless of the scenario, if it's Carnegie Hall or if it's um, a children's concert or, you know, playing some, some free fundraising concert, it doesn't really matter. We always come with our A game. And that's really quite something in any, in any company or any sports team or any arts organization to always be giving your 100% best effort. Um, there's something to that, and that's, that's made me proud to be a member of the orchestra. Additionally, Montreal is a very artistic city. It's a very creative city, very cultural city. And, you know, let's face it, I mean, the arts in some other areas don't prosper that well because people don't make it a priority for whatever reason. Um, and Montreal, people make it a priority in their lives, and that's, that's not unnoticed by us musicians, you know, that, that live here and work here. We, we appreciate their support, and it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to connect with people here, too, that are such, such passionate uh, lovers of classical music and music in general. Joining us on the show is Paul Markello, principal trumpet with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. You can learn more about Paul and grab all of his social media handles off of his website, paulmarkellotrumpet.com. Paul, can you give us an example of what like a typical day is like for you when you guys are in session at the MSO? Yeah, sure. I mean, we we usually do between two to four concerts a week. And we'll start, you know, we'll, we'll probably start either on a Sunday or a Monday, rehearsing it from 10 to 12.30 and then 2 to 4.30. So that could be a double service day. Uh, we'll have four to five rehearsals per week for that concert series. And so, you know, on paper, if we, if I said, well, it's 20 to 30 hours a week, somebody might say, well, wow, that's not that much, but we are all going home and practicing, you know, three to four hours or more per day just to maintain our level on the instrument. It's our obligation to come to the job, prepare from the first rehearsal. And that requires a lot of extra hours uh, in my practice studio, just getting ready for my week-to-week responsibilities, both in the orchestra and as a soloist. And how long, because I'm not sure how this works, how, how does the, the sessions work for the MSO? Like, do you guys have like a two-month break at some point in the summer? Like, how does that work throughout the year? Yeah, so we usually, our season goes from September to the beginning of June. That's the, the, the regular season. Then we have a summer season that happens well, it's roughly mid-June to mid-August. So we have a little bit of break in June for a couple of weeks, and then we have about, a, would say, about three weeks off or four weeks off uh, mid-August to sort of mid-September. So we do get that little break, and obviously we get the Christmas break too, which is, which is nice. We, we need that rest. I need that rest for my lips. <laughs> okay, yeah, I would imagine. And I wanted to talk to you too. I don't think a lot of people think about this, but, you know, I've interviewed some other, um, you know, musicians before, particularly I, I had a conversation with uh, Janet Jackson's drummer, and he was mm. talking about how, like, it's very important for him to, like, do yoga and stretching and, and, and cardio and all that kind of stuff to keep himself in the best shape possible to play his instrument. So I'm wondering what physical activity takes precedence for you to stay in shape? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, everybody's different on this. Some people prefer, you know, a more relaxed approach, like doing a meditation or yoga, things like this. But I'm more, I don't know what it is, if it's something in my personality or just the balance I need for the pressure on stage. I need to do sports 
at a very vigorous level. Like I need to do like, you know, I can't just run on a treadmill for 20 minutes at a medium pace. I need to like do interval training or I'm currently boxing and, or, or, you know, entering something like a, a biathlon or a triathlon. If I put the harder, I push myself away from the trumpet and sort of get all that angst and adrenaline out. When I come to the instrument, I feel more calm. It maybe seems counterintuitive, but yeah, the harder I push in my sports, uh, the, the more relaxed I feel behind the instrument. And it, there is the breathing element. So, you know, when I feel in good cardio shape, I feel that I have better breath control on the trumpet. And that only serves to, to promote better phrasing and, you know, better tone quality and, and these sorts of things. Your latest album is called The Enlightened Trumpet. Can you explain why you called it that and, and why you chose to go in this direction with this particular uh, project? Yeah, it actually sounds like I, I'm a, a yogi for that <laughs> one. <laughs> but actually, actually, all of these concertos were written during the Age of Enlightenment. And during the Age of Enlightenment, which was a very long period, historically speaking, it was a revolutionary period, particularly in the arts and, and creatively speaking. So what happened during this time for the trumpet is that it went from its, let's say, more archaic, natural state to... Uh, someone creating an instrument that had uh, that had keys, like similar to a saxophone, and so it allowed the instrument to play the full chromatic scale. And I think you know when Haydn heard about this, he decided to write this beautifully expressive concerto, uh, and Hummel followed suit. And so on those two concertos on my album, you're going to hear you know this this sort of like really uh, longing chromaticism that gives the instrument more soul, more virtuosity, and takes it from, at that period, you know, let's just say a more maybe military sensibility to a much more soloistic and expressive sensibility. How did you decide to work with the Oxford Philharmonic on this release? Well, that was a a confluence of of many different events. I mean, my manager, you know, reached out to them. They're an up-and-coming chamber orchestra in Europe, and they're very progressive-minded, progressive-thinking and they were very interested in the project. And the fact that they perform in the Sheldonian Theater in Oxford, where Haydn actually premiered some of his works, became just a feather in the cap. Um, my producer, Michael Fine, who's, who's a genius, you know, he was on board for this. Sony Classical was on board for that. And so, you know, it was just sort of the perfect storm. And I was back there in October playing with Oxford Phil. Um, and we just, it was really fun. It was like seeing an old friend. We played at the Sheldonian and it was just really, really cool to go back and perform with them again. Can you explain how recording of a, you know, a, a classical album kind of goes? Cause I know that, you know, for us who listen to sort of pop music, I mean, sometimes it can be as quickly as, you know, two months that the artist can sort of bang something out. Sometimes it's six months. Uh, I'm just wondering like how the process went for you from beginning to end, uh, to get this happening. Well, we recorded this two years ago in the summer in England, and it took me it took me and the production team about five months to finish all the post production. This project took a little longer than others other recordings I've done, simply because the nature of these concertos, when you listen to them, they sound really simple. But sometimes simple music is the hardest thing to record because it's got to be like quote unquote perfect. You know, like every note has to be perfectly centered and the intonation has to be just right. And so, you know, it was more on my side, really trying to come up with 
uh, the right sound, the right articulation, the right blend between myself and the orchestra, because it's really, really important, kind of hard to blend a trumpet with an orchestra sometimes. So I, I feel that we really accomplished that, and that took us a little longer to do, but I'm pleased with the result. How are you in the, the studio, Paul? Because I know, you know, a lot of musicians are super type A and very picky about the takes that they do, you know, whether it's vocal or, or with instruments. So I'm just wondering, like, do you know when you've got something or do you make yourself do it 15 times? I'm super type A, really picky. Okay. <laughs> I figured, I figured that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm, look, I'm trying to work with the, the team and everything and I'm, I'm, I'm open to everybody's suggestions, but at the end of the day, it is my playing and, and it is something that I, you know, I, I take very, very seriously and I want to come up. It's always tricky. I think I want to come up with like this, you know, sort of perfect playing, but I also, I really want the music to come through and sometimes you have to sacrifice a little bit. You maybe, you know, I took a risk on a phrase and the note, you know, tapered earlier than I want or whatever, but you have to, you know, sort of weigh it and say, well, musically, that's what I want. And technically, I might give up something or vice versa. Musically, I really went for that, but the note went a little bit out of tune or it got a little raspy. Let's dial that in. Let's make it a little more conservative. So it's always that, that sort of negotiation between myself, my artistic standards, my technical standards to try to come up with the best possible product. What do you want people to take away from this project? I hope that listeners, whether they're classical aficionados or not, whether they're trumpet lovers or not, I hope they feel something from this recording because this is a passion project for me. I've been studying these concertos since I'm, like I said, 10, 11 years old. And I came up with sort of my own interpretation. There's many recordings of great trouble players playing these concertos. And I just wanted to offer my take on it. So I hope listeners can feel that and kind of feel my personality come through and just, you know, I hope they enjoy it. And will you be touring the project? Are, are you out doing lots of dates to support this album? Yes, I already have been. We started, like I said, with back in the, the fall. I was in England with Oxford Philharmonic playing the concertos. I have a big debut with the English Chamber Orchestra, which is just a phenomenal world-class group. I'm playing the concertos with them in April in London at Cadogan Hall, and I'm leaving uh, next week to do a solo recital tour of the concertos in uh, four different cities in the U.S., uh, along with some master classes to uh, promote the educational aspect around it. And what's up for Paul Markello next, sort of career-wise, after you're done promoting this album? Do you have more specific goals coming, you know, for the rest of this year? Yeah, I mean, I actually recorded another album. I, after this one was done, the following summer, I went to Moscow and I recorded Russian trumpet concerto, some of the most famous by Shostakovich, Weinberg, and Artunian with the Russian National Orchestra. And that was done in Zaryadi Hall, which is a brand new hall in Moscow. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal concert hall. And so we're uh, working on that right now, the edits on that, and we're hoping to release that next fall. Cool. And before I let you go, I have to ask this, because obviously I know, you know, you take your trumpet playing very seriously. I know you, you do a lot of work, obviously, with classical music, but does Paul Markello ever, like, decide on a Friday night, I'm going to go hang out in an R&B bar and just, you know, blow away with the band? Like, do you ever do stuff like that, Paul? Yeah. Why, have you heard about it? Because I do that. <laughs> no, I haven't. So I'm, I'm excited to know. This is awesome. No, I've done it before. I try to do it really discreetly because, well, first of all, you know, improvisation, as I mentioned, it's a relatively new thing for me. I'd say in the last five years, but I'm getting, you know, slowly but surely more confident with it. And yeah, definitely. If I'm out and my trumpet is in the car or with me, 
Um, and I, you know, friends of mine say, Hey, so-and-so is playing here or there. I mean, sometimes I'll just sort of do it very impromptu and hopefully unannounced usually because I don't want the pressure. <laughs> it doesn't go well. Um, and I do it a lot on trips because, you know, people don't know me as much. So like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've been doing it more and more lately and it's really, really, really fun. And I hope, you know, that I can feel confident enough to, you know, actually announce some of those projects and, and get more people to come. But I'm still woodshedding my improv skills, so stay tuned. That's awesome. Well, Paul, thanks so much for doing this. And again, continued success. You're always welcome back on the show. Thanks so much, Kelly. Nice to talk to you. The Kelly Alexander Show. Here's a look at what's been going on in music and entertainment. Justin Bieber clearly likes being amazing at everything. Not only has Justin slayed the world of pop and Latin music, he's now doing the same in country. Justin and his friends Dan and Shay have just picked up four nominations for the upcoming Academy of Country Music Awards. Their hit song, 10,000 Hours, is up for Song of the Year, Music Event of the Year, and even Music Video of the Year. Now that we're into March, we are only a couple of weeks away from this year's Juno Awards, which is basically Canada's version of the Grammys. It's happening in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and the show is going to be hosted by one of our favorite artists here on The Kelly Alexander Show, Alessia Cara. You'll also get to see peeps like Lennon Stella, Tory Lanez, and Ali Gaddy all up on stage performing. The Junos go down on March 15th. And finally, another hit TV show is coming to an end this year, the rebooted Hawaii Five-0, which has been on the air for 10 seasons and stars Alex O'Loughlin, Scott Kahn, and Megan Rath is going to call it a day on April 3rd with a two-hour series finale. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us on the show this week and a shout out to our guests, Dirty Honey and Paul Morkello. My thanks, of course, to Adam Brisson for being a superstar producer. And don't forget that you can listen to us on all major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. We'd also love for you to grab all of our social media handles by hitting up our website, kellyalexandershow.com. Have a great week. You and I will chat soon. The Kelly Alexander Show.